is Our American Stories, and from eating food, talking on the phone, and texting, one in every four crashes involves a fatality of someone who was distracted when they were driving. A high percentage of these drivers are in their teens and early 20s. We recently read about this story in the Wall Street Journal, and it was U.S. traffic fatalities continued to surge. That was the headline. And so we sent out our own Russ Jones to the streets to dive further into the matter. Don't text and drive. And you mean it, don't you? I do mean it. (laughs) That's Jennifer Bartholomew in her mama bear voice with a warning she's often given her teenage son before he hops in the car. And Bartholomew, as well as parents across the country, has reason for concern. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, traffic deaths rose 10.4% in the first half of 2016. This year, numbers could reach new highs and surpass 1966 stats when 35,000 road fatalities were recorded, raising fresh concerns about distracted driving. When he first got his license, more so just about not texting and um, just putting the phone aside or putting it in the back if he could, just so it's not a temptation, you know, to text. And parked outside Mississippi's Oxford High School, Linda Campbell waits to pick up her 14-year-old son. And when asked if she had a teen driver in the house... You are rushing me. My son is 14 years old, and he is determined to drive, but I'm not ready for that yet. Deputy Administrator Terry Shelton of the Department of Transportation says they can't quite pinpoint the cause, but cell phone use while driving is believed to be one of the chief reasons in the rise of traffic fatalities. Distraction has many causes, but certainly part of that are the many different devices that people take into the car with them and the devices in the vehicles themselves. Shelton tells Our American Stories that low gas prices has people traveling more, which could also point to the spike in traffic fatalities. But one thing is certain, it only takes a split second for tragedy to strike. Five seconds at 55 miles an hour, that's enough to cover length of a football field. So if you imagine, you could hit a lot of things in the length of a football field. 911, address of your emergency. We have a very bad wreck at Marcus Street and 46. We got a kid in the car upside down. I'm not sure it's looking good for the driver. I'm watching them right now. They have the baby in their hands. They're getting the baby. They got the baby at the car. And it took less than the length of a football field for one Ohio driver to find her life hanging in the balance. And having all these injuries, it's really painful. And especially having my nephew in the car, I could have killed him. And that would have been. I wouldn't have been able to live with that. And then there's Lauren Valancourt. She has to live with the pain of no longer having a brother. On May 20, 2009, 21-year-old Kelson was riding with a co-worker to a job site. The driver was distracted and failed to yield at a stop sign. He drove into oncoming traffic, and their vehicle was struck by a tractor-trailer. Kelson died the next day. Just because someone made one stupid mistake. I'm an only child now. <laughs> Nothing is worth that. No distraction is worth that. Before this happened to my family, to my brother, I never knew how big of an issue it was. And that I feel like that's the case with most people, as they don't realize how big of a problem this is until it happens to them or it happens to someone they know. 
my brother's accident was 100% preventable. Now, most major cellular providers are developing new tools to help with not being distracted while driving. AT&T's free drive mode app for Android and iPhone is rated one of the best. Once your car starts moving more than 15 miles per hour, the app turns on automatically. U.S. officials hope advances in driverless cars help curb the growing trend of fatal crashes. So in the meantime, though, parents like Linda Campbell are just fine chauffeuring her kids. My so loving his phone, can't even go to the bathroom without his phone. So two more years, I guess I'll be one of those parents. For Our American Stories, I'm Russ Jones. And we'll keep following that story down as more and more people lose lives to texting and driving. I think it could become another movement. I think there could become another movement like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And I think it's coming to a town near you and a state near you soon. And now it's time for another edition of Steve Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude. One of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College. He's the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who daydreams a lot. But before we bring you this daydream, Steve asked us that we read this disclosure, which we read before every daydream. Quote, the following are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, popping into my head unexpectedly, and that's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. And here's Steve Goldberg's latest talentless daydream. I'm the captain of a huge clipper ship on which are all the world's Jews. We're escaping another huge country in which we were a tiny minority. As usual, when something went wrong in the country, the leader said, I got it. We'll blame it on the Jews. So we had to get out. After having been turned away by countless numbers of countries, and uh, then what seemed like uh, sailing forever on a huge, huge sea, we approached still another shore. Um, We're met by a guy in a huge uh, black top hat and severe clothing. I'm, of course, wearing the same traditional clothes that Hasidim have always worn. No one is going to mistake him for me or vice versa. The guy says... This is America. What do you want? I say, we're the Jews. We'd like to live here. The guy says, well, okay, but you've got to understand, you won't be treated any better than anyone else. I turn to my first mate and ask, what did he say? The first mate answers, I must have heard wrong, but I think he said we won't be treated any better than anyone else. The American says, that's right. You won't be treated any better than anyone else. It doesn't take me long, a second, to answer, Mr. You got yourself a deal. And there you have it, another precious Goldberg's Daydreams here on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand This is Our American Stories, and today we want to bring your attention to an amazing documentary that is currently available on Netflix and Hulu. A documentary that will make you laugh, think, and cry. And this segment you're about to hear is a preview of what you'll see in this mind-opening film. And we love to bring you things from the culture and pass them along to you. And you may have a life we don't. We love checking out all this stuff and sharing it with you. Alive Inside is a joyous cinematic exploration of music's capacity to reawaken our souls and uncover the deepest parts of our humanity. It chronicles the astonishing experiences of individuals suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's around the country who have been revitalized through the simple experience of listening to music. So what's the big deal? Why would anyone go out of their way to give someone with Alzheimer's an iPod? Take a listen to this 90-year-old woman who tragically can't remember much about her life on this earth when she's asked about her childhood. How old are you? How old am I? Yeah. I'm 90 years old. What was life like when you were a little girl? Oh, God, I forgot so much. I I forgot forgot so much. I'm very sorry. Oh, it's okay. What have you forgotten? I've forgotten what I used to do after I became a young lady. I've forgotten so much. I can't remember. I've been here here 90 years, and if I could remember... I would tell you, but I don't, I can't remember. Dan Cohen is founder and director of Music and Memory, which promotes the use of digital music players with individualized playlists to improve the quality of life for elders. Listen to what happens when he plays this same woman, some Louis Armstrong. I want to try an experiment. What? I want you to try and let the music take you back into your memories, to travel back into time. And then we'll stop, and you can tell me where it took you. Um, okay. um, you ready? Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to be in that number. I went to St. He's saying when the saints go by, marching by, and it takes me back to my school days. I would like to hit the number. Mama told us not to go listen to him. We would sneak off at night, bring back pictures from the dance. And I worked in King County nine years. I was working at Fort Jackson. And my son, on February the 4th, was 69. (laughs) I didn't know I could talk so What you just heard was an instant illumination of this woman's soul through the power of music. What a great God moment. But you need to watch this documentary called Alive Inside to get the full effect. Seeing the faces, the body language of elderly people who instantly light up upon hearing the music of their youth is something we all need to witness for ourselves. Next, we're introduced to another old-timer named Henry. Henry is borderline catatonic and doesn't recognize his daughter. Henry, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Can you talk to me? Mm-hmm. So let me hear you. Tell me your full name. 
Henry has dementia and he needs total assistance with all his activities of daily living. Hi, Papa. Huh? How you doing? Huh? Who am I? I'm your daughter. Daughter? Mm-hmm. Which one? Wait a minute. I don't know. I got too many. I don't know. Listen to Henry after a nurse puts headphones on his ears. He asks if he can sing along. Then a nurse describes his reaction. I, I would sing with this. You can if you like. When I first met him, he was very isolated and he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this. He didn't really talk to much people. And then when I introduced the music to him, this is his reaction every since. <laughs> Everyone in that room with Henry was blown away by his reaction. Dan Cohen, the man behind this effort to give music back to the elderly who suffer from dementia, talked to Henry right after he listened to that song. Here is their remarkable conversation. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Did you like music when you were young? Yes, yes. I went to big dances and things. What was your favorite music when you were young? Well, well I guess Cab uh, Calloway was my number one band guy. I liked it. Isn't that incredible? This man couldn't recognize his own daughter, but after just a few minutes of listening to an iPod, could remember his favorite musician, Cab Calloway, as he burst out into a scat. Henry was then asked what his favorite song was, and what the favorite part of his life was. Listen to what happens next. What's your favorite song? Oh, I'll be home before Christmas. You can count on me with plenty of snow, mistletoe. Present, wrap around you free. Ow, Christmas Eve will carry me where that love light beam. Henry, Ma, yeah. What was the favorite part of your life? What was your favorite part of your life? Of my life. It was part of my life was riding a bicycle, grocery boy. What'd you like about riding a bicycle? That's why I made my money. You need no money. Isn't that true about all the favorite parts of our life? So what's going on here? This film goes on to explain that music is recorded in the part of our brain that is the last place dementia affects. So why isn't this being implemented in nursing homes across this country and everywhere? Dan Cohen explains the problem. I can sit down and write out a script for $1,000 a month antidepressant. No problem. Nobody asks any questions. If I want to provide a person with $40 uh, personal music system, that will take a lot of work. Because personal music, 
doesn't count as a medical intervention. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of a side thing over here. The real business, trust me, is in the pill bottle. Open for me. Our healthcare system imagines the human being to be a very complicated machine. We figured out how to turn the dials. Blood pressure, oh, turn that down, you know? Blood sugar, oh, turn that down. We have medicines that can adjust the dials. We haven't done anything, medically speaking, to touch the heart and soul of a patient. One more of the many elderly in this film suffering from dementia is a woman named Mary Lou. Here, she struggles to identify kitchen utensils before she is given an iPod. Listen to what she says immediately after listening to the Beach Boys. What do you call that? Um, it's a... For, uh, sk- Knife? No. Fork? Or spoon? Would you like to hear some music? Would you like to... Listen to some music. Sure, why not? Here you go. Over I your don't head. know how to do this. Just straight over your ears and your head. Perfect. See a little button in the middle? That's that? Yeah, right in the middle. Click it once. Wanna stop the music? Uh, Oh, thank you so much. Okay. So there's uh, tears of joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing I've ever, ever had, this thing. It can't get away from me if I'm in this place. I thought you were going to grow wings. I was trying. I, I, you... <laughs> <laughs> this incredible documentary concludes with a beautiful message on the importance and power of music in all of our lives. And we know, we know that to be the case. What a remarkable thing this man did. We know music has the power to change lives. We know it triggers memory. But this guy went out and did it. And let me tell you, if you want to help or you want to know more or learn more, go to musicandmemory.org. That's musicandmemory.org. There you can learn more about Dan Cohen's Remarkable mission to bring music to those of us who need it more than ever. What a selfless, creative, and generous way to honor those in their final days. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, arts, love, death, and business, and occasionally about our government and its impact on our lives. And for the longest time, we'd been talking about in our studio about the role of this show and mostly its storytelling, but periodically we're going to poke around into stories about our own government because the fourth estate and that is journalism is supposed to protect us from an over-encroaching government. And that was always the rule and role of the First Amendment. And all too often now you're not hearing enough stories about, about that and about the impact of government and particularly government corruption on our lives. And so when and where we find those stories, 
We're going to drill down deep on them because it's a core part of our show, talking about things like separation of powers, driving power to the local level whenever possible, to keep government accountable to the people. It's a simple idea, we the people, and it's a fundamental part of our American stories, is that we honor the story and the impact individuals can have and want to keep government at bay whenever we can. And today, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brings us this story. October 3rd, 2013. Directed by a court order, the police raid four Wisconsin homes. Please search for In the middle of the night. I rushed downstairs thinking the worst. With their children there. Armed officer goes into the bedrooms of the kids and wakes them up. Who were sound asleep. It was about 5.30, it was dark outside. I hear a pounding on the door. This 16-year-old Noah Johnson was home alone. Mine's racing a mile a minute. His parents left early that morning for work and weren't there when their home was raided. I'm looking around outside. There are flashlights everywhere on the sidewalk around the house. The police wouldn't let Noah call his parents. They didn't let me call anyone. He couldn't let them know what happened, that he was safe. Deborah Jordahl's home was also raided, and this is what they told her. We would be subject to jail time and a fine if we told anybody about the search on our home. Did they say why? No. For that kind of show of force, with battering rams and taking everything, Children's computers were seized with homework on them. We're told to lie about it. So, you know, the old, the old thing, the dog ate my homework. How's it sound, you know, I lost my computer. Where'd you lose it? I don't know. You'd think these families were dangerous. Does it mean her husband's a pedophile? Uh, does it mean they're big-time drug dealers? But they weren't. You're supposed to have extraordinary circumstances to do a raid in the dark. And by the way, to do a home raid at all that's aggressive with, you know, flak-vested people and lights is supposed to require some risk of flight, danger, destruction of evidence, none of which is present at all. There's none of that. The crime alleged against him? A violation of campaign finance laws. Campaign finance laws. How boring. But the government's response? all too exhilarating for these families. Is this an appropriate tactic for any kind of campaign finance question? Where physical danger to the public isn't a question. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. And these folks, who are primarily engaged in raising money and creating television commercials, aren't exactly the most intimidating characters on the block. They could have knocked, I would have let them in. Unlike these guys. I spent 14 years in an 859 cell surrounded by people who were less than human. My mission in that time was to become more than human. 
Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm specifically alleged that these individuals were involved in illegal coordination between Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker's campaign and nonprofit organizations who advocate for public policy positions. Well before the raids, Chisholm had the most private information from these individuals taken from them without giving them notice prior to seizing them, violating the Stored Communications Act, a federal law. They already had our emails, we subsequently learned. They already had our bank records. They knew what we were doing. We were proud of what we were doing. They didn't ask us. These raids were not really based on any belief that they would find incriminating information. The person speaking, Eric O'Keefe, said that it was a shutdown play to scare them into submission. Thankfully for Eric, his was one of the few homes that were not raided. One was mine. They didn't raid it because uh, I live in a rural area and the Democratic District Attorney didn't trust the Republican sheriff to conduct the raid and keep quiet about it. They were all told that they had to keep quiet about it because it's what's called a John Doe investigation, a special kind of secret investigation where all parties, the prosecutors, the police, and the defendants all have to keep mum. It's supposedly meant to protect innocent people's good name if the charges against them are dropped. But it also can protect overly zealous prosecutors, like this one, John Chisholm, the guy who requested the dark of the night raids and the illegal seizure of records from public scrutiny. Public scrutiny that brings accountability. And the public needed to know about this, Eric O'Keefe believed. And so he told them about it in violation of the secrecy order. An unconstitutional secrecy order, and I'm, I'm defying the secrecy order. Right now. Yes. Putting himself in greater danger of being sent to prison. But to O'Keefe, the greatest danger is having our rights taken away from us. In silence. What I want to have now in Wisconsin is debate about who is sovereign in Wisconsin. Do we have, are we ruled by the government or do we the people oversee the government? I think it's the job of the people to hold the government accountable. They have inverted the American idea of popular sovereignty. Meanwhile, government bureaucrats and this prosecutor in particular have ignored their primary job, the foundational purpose of government, to keep its citizens safe. Murders are way up, carjackings are up, the uh, administration in Milwaukee has a no-chase policy for car thefts, so the drug trade is now run from stolen cars, and there are, there, uh, are multiple car thefts every day, and they just rotate them, and they have, uh, they have teenagers do the stealing, and they put them in, and they do their transactions from them until they have a chase that gets enough of an ID, then they dump the car. And uh, that is the kind of thing that a district attorney responsible for the citizens might be working on instead of raiding the homes of people who don't even live in his county. In July of 2015, the Wisconsin Supreme Court declared the John Doe investigation unconstitutional and ordered it to be shut down for good. The court also ordered the prosecutors to return the over 6 million records they seized from the targeted individuals. And yet somehow some way the guardian newspaper received sealed court records that included many of these communications and published them over a year later on september 14th 2016 now who would leak such a thing 
the sad thing is that it doesn't take much thought to take a guess. This sad saga continues. Stay tuned. And great job on that, Alex. And what a story. I love that line from Eric O'Keefe. Are we ruled by the government or do we run our government? And again, these are the kind of stories we'll dig into. You'll get the other part of this story very soon. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, the John Doe investigation in Wisconsin. It's a mushroom. Do you know what I mean? It gets bigger and bigger. It involves all kinds of people. It's a very good lesson. Do you listen at all? What kind of responsible behavior is that? Anything else? Have I been respectful to you? Just do me a favor. Stick yourself outside. You're irritating me. <laughs> this is Leah Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And I love it when Jesse just hits the Judge Judy soundboard for yeah. a while. What? And we love doing Judge Judy cases. That's what. And, well, what's the case today that we're going to be looking at, Greg? What did you dig up? I dug up the case of the irresponsible drug dealer. And uh, the reason I picked this case is because, uh, yeah, he's an irresponsible drug dealer. But there is some context to be found out here. And uh, I think it's going to have a little bit of a twist. Good. 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 Well, let's take a listen. What's the case about? Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, Edward, just got busted. You bailed him out. Yes, ma'am. An admitted drug user helps a dealer go free. Mr. Milan says it was to your benefit to get him out of jail. But did she set up this deal? The arrangement was Amy said, you don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this. Out of fear of getting cut off? She thought I was still going to be able to supply her. Judge Judy. Amy Shelley is suing her former friend, Edward Milan, for a loan to bail him out of jail. Edward says he never asked for Amy's help. All rise. All right, Hengler, set us up. Um, so Edward, he's the man that bailed, he got bailed out of jail. He's a former drug dealer. And uh, just we're going to find out now about Melissa. Uh, she, about, she's uh, the friend, or no, she's actually the girlfriend of Edward, the drug dealer. Probably has been sworn in, Judge. You may be seated. Is your name Folks Melissa? Stand over there. I assume that since you're standing with the defendant, you are a witness for the defendant. Is that right? Yes. How long have you been his girlfriend? Almost three years. You have children together? Correct. How many? One daughter. How old? 19 months. How many times has he been arrested since you've known him? Twice. For what? Um, possession. And... Possession of drugs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And? Uh, running from the cops. I guess that's it. What were you arrested for twice, sir, since you have been involved with the lovely Melissa? Uh, I've got arrested for 
possession, battery, and... Uh, battery of whom? Battery of my girlfriend and... Uh, Which girlfriend? Melissa. I just actually pushed her, but that's battery. If you push somebody, that's battery. That and uh, along with, let me see, that, that's it. Those two things. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. What happens next, Angler? Edward, the drug dealer, was bailed out by his girlfriend. We just heard from her, Melissa. Her friend, Amy Shelley. Now, Miss Shelley, she's the one of Edward's customers. And we'll find out it's her meth customer. Well, let's hear how these friends ended up in Judge Judy's courtroom. Now, the plaintiff, Miss Shelley, was a friend of the lovely Melissa, and you got yourself arrested. So Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, what's your first name? Edward. Edward just got busted for the first time since you've known her or the second time since you've known her? First time. So that must have been for drugs. That was for a, a number of things. Being intoxicated, the drugs, and the uh, battery. And could you please help me and get him out of jail? That was the call. Is that right? Yes. How long had you and Miss Shelley been friends? Over 20 years. Have you used drugs with her? I'm asking you a question. Don't think about the answer. Just give me the answer. Yes. Frequently? Not in a while. Not in how long? A long time. So as far as you knew, she was not using drugs? At the time? Yes. Yes. Oh, she was? No. Shh. My apologies, Your Honor. At the time you called her to bail out Edward, did you think Miss Shelley was using drugs? Yes. And you? No, I was pregnant. What kind of drugs was Miss Shelley using? Meth. And where was she getting it from? Edward. So this is what the case is all about. You bailed him out. It's $2,500. $1,000 he gave you back. Correct. But you signed for the bail. Correct. According to you, he was supposed to pay for the bail, make periodic payments to the bail bondsman. Yes, ma'am. He did not. No, ma'am. You are stuck with it. So her meth dealer boyfriend <laughs> ditched her bail money. This is a good one, Kangler. What happens next? All right, now we're going to, Judge Judy's going to zoom in on Edward's employment and his recent criminal history. What do you do for a living, Edward? I just recently started working for Local 510. It's an event services like event management for car shows setting up for car shows what did you do before that uh before that i actually wasn't working and before that i was doing uh you know construction how long were you a drug dealer uh on and off for a couple years starting when and finishing when finishing the day i went to jail i went and spent like two and a half months there then you after mean on this arrest yeah on this arrest when were you arrested for battery of melissa that day of melissa that day it all happened all at once since April 24, 2006, you have had no arrest. Is no that arrest. what you're telling me? Yeah, no arrest. Except for the day and a half after I was bailed out, which I was bailed out on the 26th of April, same, the same day that I was arrested. I went right back to jail a day and a half later because of violation of probation. What probation? The probation that I was on originally, which was felony evasion, which is running from the police in my car. That's what put me on probation. Why were you running from the police? Oh, I, had, I was on... Edward, why I was on running? drugs myself. So you were on probation for driving while under the influence of drugs? No, no, I, they didn't give me an under the influence charge, but, you know, I was a user. So basically, um, I got the felony evasion, and that gave me the felony probation, which uh, I, I, I violated when I, when I got this case. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. What, <laughs> does Judge Judy keep it together here? I Usually, well, like you up for breakfast. No, actually... <laughs> What you're going to catch on, what we're noticing here is is something that's going to unpack itself a little bit in a little bit, and that this guy is transparent. You can tell there's been a transformation in his heart and his life. 
Because he's a straight shooter. You notice Judge Judy's called up the other two and said, I want straight answers right away because they're hesitating. This guy is telling her more than what she's asking. So you know something's going on here. Well, let's find out. How long had you been selling uh, Miss Shelley drugs? Probably about a year. Just meth? Yeah, that's it. Where were you getting it from? Where was I getting it from? From other sources. How many customers did you have? Not many. You know, just basically trying to get by. How many? Probably about five. And you made a living doing this? Uh, semi. A semi-living, not much. Okay. Your daughter's 19 months old. Yes. But since then, I've cleaned up. You know, I've been through a program. I've been clean for like two years since this incident happened. Fine. Now, you've been clean for two years, Edward. What program have you been through? Uh, It's called the Henry Olaf program. It's in San Francisco, California. Part of that program is accepting responsibility for your own actions? Correct. That it's not anybody else's fault if bad things happen to you? It's your fault? You're supposed to take care of it? You were arrested for felony possession on the 24th of April, 2006? Correct. Whose fault is that? Mine. Whose responsibility is it to clean up after you? Uh, my, My responsibility to clean up after myself. How much was your bail? Twenty-five thousand, ten percent of that, twenty-five hundred dollars. Yeah. How much did you pay? What I paid was nothing. My girlfriend used my money to pay for the bail. She gave the money to Amy. How much? I think it was a thousand, and then she also uh, paid a couple of payments because Amy was harassing her and texting her stuff. (laughs) So so far, Melissa used your money. Yeah. To pay her the thousand dollars up front. Correct. And then Melissa used her money. To make a couple of payments. Correct. On the other 1500 Correct. So, so far, I hear you not taking responsibility, Edward. Well, actually... I yeah. hear Melissa taking responsibility for your few payments. I was in jail. But I don't hear you taking responsibility. I was in jail. Did you give the money back to her? Did I give the money back to Melissa? Yes. Actually, no, I didn't pay Melissa back. Why? That's your program. Well, yeah. Well, what happened was, the arrangement was, and I remember this clearly, Amy said... You don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this, okay? Helping me pay this for the simple fact that she probably thought, what my thinking is, she thought I was still going to be able to supply her. But when I was trying to clean myself up, I didn't, okay, want, I didn't want anything to do with that, you know? I, I want that part of my life to be over, so. Okay. Well, you know, he does sound pretty straight. Yeah. So what happens next? I don't know. Let's listen to her wrap it up. You've been honest with me so far, yeah. Edward. So I see no reason to think that you weren't honest about this. I'm not even going to ask Miss Shelley about your drug use, Miss Shelley. Absolutely. Absolutely what? By all means, ask. Did you ever use meth? I have indeed, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Did you ever get it from Edward? I did on two occasions, Your Honor. Uh, just all? And you did? Yes. Perfect. I love everybody when they're honest. It makes my life so much easier. Edward, I want to explain something to you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you ensure that what you learned in the program in San Francisco is emblazoned in your memory. Oh, it is. Not yet. Who was selling drugs? Myself. Who was making money from the sale of drugs? Myself. Who knew that it was against the law? Me. Who took the risk of selling the drugs? I did. Who got arrested? I did. Who got bailed out? I did. Whose responsibility is it? It's my responsibility. Then you pay the tab, Edward. That's what it means to accept the responsibility. Do you understand? I understand. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $1,100. That's all. Thank Thank you, you, Your Honor. Isaac, excuse You may step out. Wow, this is why people love Judge Judy. Mm -hmm. Yes! (laughs) Yes, and she doesn't rip this guy, though. I mean... This no. is a very unique Judge Judy. She could see, she could see that there was some change. Yep, but not all the way. Not all, yeah, not all the way. I mean, he's still hanging on, but uh, 
it's also refreshing to see that uh, somebody with so much trouble can also turn around. This is Our American Stories. Judge Judy, thanks, Hengler. And uh, find some more for us. We love the show. It's the biggest show on television. She's got the biggest contract in the history of television. And I know sometimes you're busy, you're at work, you can't catch it. Sometimes we can't either. And that's why Hengler's here. And he brings us our favorite and some of the best and more interesting Judge Judy's here on Our American Stories. with our American stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a dying patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old. Ph.D., scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes, which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus I said to her, 
Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body, only eight hours after we told her that she had this incurable illness and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me, yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why, without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer, which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, 
and her nieces whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite weekly stories, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. Also, make sure to leave your story there. We've all got one. Either we've received a random act of kindness, and if we're lucky enough, we've actually gone ahead and given them out. As you'll see, these things tend to take on a life of their own. Today, we're bringing you two classics that we found on randomactsofkindness.org. The first story is about a young lady named Hannah Bruncher. She won the Random Acts of Kindness Challenge a few years ago and has only sped up from there. Let's listen to Hannah tell her story. Ever since I was a child, it was like my dream to move to New York City and become a writer. I moved right after graduating from college. Very quickly, I started to become very sad and very lonely and didn't know how to really tell my friends or family about it. Depression had been this ugly word to me growing up and it was something that happens to other people. It was becoming harder to get up in the morning. It was becoming harder to be in conversation with people. I just felt very worthless. One day I was on the train and a woman came onto the train from the platform. She looked lonely, she looked downtrodden, she looked sad. I pulled out a notebook and I wrote her a letter and it just, it felt like I had been doing it for years. I noticed something happened in that moment where I just, I forgot about myself and I forgot about the sadness and the worthlessness. There was this resolution in my mind that if if this is how this letter writing makes me feel then I am gonna do it as much as I possibly can. I basically made a promise to people, like, if you need a handwritten letter for any reason at all, I don't care who you are and I don't care where you've been, I will write it to you. My inbox just started to fill up with letter requests. It was women struggling with loneliness in Japan and New Zealand. It was girls being bullied. It was boys moving to new cities. I realized very quickly that people don't need you to relate to them. They don't need you to have all the right words. I think that sometimes life just calls us to have words, you know, just to be there and show up for somebody when they are losing all hope. It didn't matter that I was sad, that I was lonely, that I was depressed. I could be that for somebody else and I wasn't gonna miss the opportunity to do that says that I have too much mail so I need to go to the front and pick it up. 
This one's from Australia. Missouri. Korea. There we go. Here's a Korea one. Southborough, Massachusetts. This one is from Romania. I started the organization moreloveletters.com. The whole thing started with one love letter and one lonely girl on a train, and that escalated into 400 letters. And then it turned into 12 team writers that spiraled into 11,000 letters being mailed in 49 countries in all 50 states. I've taken any letter that's really meant something to me in the past year or two, and I've just kept it along the walls. We're making sure they're good love letters and then we're gonna be mailing them off to people. You never meet these people, but you know that you're doing a little something that's gonna encourage them. Everything is emails and Facebook and Instagram. I'm writing you a letter. This is coming from my heart. This isn't just a part of the everyday technology. I just felt so lost and disconnected. One day, somebody said, you have a letter. And I, I must have read it a hundred times. You deserve a life packed full with fresh air and hot summers surrounded by people who love and care about you. She knew how to just say, you know, I'm sorry you feel this way and you're not alone. I mean, you can't put a price tag on that. I have never felt this much joy and this much happiness and it's because it's like my life isn't about me anymore. To be able to put your words onto a piece of paper is in a sense to tell your story and I think that our stories are the most powerful things that we hold in this world and so if my story can go out on dozens and dozens of pieces of paper, somebody can hold that at the end of a day. To me there's nothing more powerful or awesome than that. And what a great story. You know, it's interesting. John Stuart Mill, the great philosopher, had puzzled over happiness for much of his life and wrote a book about it or an essay called The Happiness Paradox. And what he discovered was, was that people who pursued happiness for themselves ended up miserable. And that people who pursued happiness in others and objects outside themselves were happy. And I think in the end, this is ultimately what Hannah discovered through this process. And it's just beautiful. And we love bringing you these kind of stories. And again, randomactsofkindness.org. That's randomactsofkindness.org. When Hannah was losing hope, losing joy, she turned it around in the end by giving love and kindness to random strangers. Our next story is every bit as remarkable. Here's Chris Rosati being interviewed by Steve Hartman on CBS. And Hartman does such wonderful work. It's the sort of thing that makes us wonder as we listen to this. If we were in this man's position, could we be half as strong? All right. Chris Rosati is both in the prime of his life and at the end of it. About a year ago, this 42-year-old marketing vice president and father of two was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's obviously heartbreaking, but it's hardly the focus around here. In fact, after Chris found out, he did something few people with a terminal illness ever choose to do. He applied online for a job as a donut delivery man. Seriously. I knew I wouldn't get a job, but at least then I could say when they arrested me, hey man, I applied. What do you mean when they arrested you? Then the next step is you try to steal a truck. That's right. He said steal a truck. It was all part of this fantasy Chris dreamed up 
to stake out the Krispy Kreme Donut Factory near where he lives in Durham, North Carolina, follow one of the drivers on a route, and take his truck when the guy's not looking. And then just go around and give away the donuts. Kind of a Robin Hood kind of thing. Yeah, made it okay. Stealing cholesterol from the rich and giving to the poor. <laughs> exactly. I was going to go the nearest school because once I knew where... This plan has some holes in it. I'm not speaking donuts. It did. <laughs> You're just going to pull up to a school and say, oh, here, everybody, here's a bunch of donuts? Well, yeah. You know, now that you said that, I probably wouldn't. Not to mention the legal ramifications. One of the blessings of ALS is, what are they going to do? In case you haven't figured out, Chris has a remarkable sense of humor about this. Which is partly why, when Krispy Kreme heard about his plotting through a Facebook post, they didn't threaten prosecution. All right. Instead, they offered transportation. Specifically, a bus. A bus stocked with donuts. The heist. And so, for an entire day, Chris, his family, and friends Line up. went on this rolling sugar high. You had two donuts? Joyfully delivering to city parks, cancer wards, Take care. and children's hospitals. We're glad to make some people smile. But the biggest smile of the day belonged to Chris himself. Remember, his original dream was to show up at a school. And here he was, at his old high school. I got a thousand donuts on the bus. <laughs> Which leads us to what this was really all about. Chris says if dying has taught him anything, it's about how to live. Thank you for the warm welcome. He says you have to do what you can to make people smile while you still have the chance. He really wants kids especially to know that. Because if I can't impact people, this whole thing is a waste. This whole thing is a waste. And since that donut caper a few years ago, Chris has been slowly losing his ability to walk and speak. But with his wife and kids, the mission goes on. For example, the Rosatis held a red carpet premiere to showcase videos that community members made of their big ideas for the greater good. One young man set up a wheel of kindness outside of a mall. Shoppers would come by, give it a spin, and do whatever smile-creating act the wheel landed on, like hug ten strangers. Some others set up tables to help adults rediscover the simple, wonderful joy of coloring. Chris, like Hannah, he found his strength and happiness in serving others. Please go to randomactsofkindness.org to learn more about these two and so many others who could give up but chose instead to give love. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories is share these kind of stories, and we'd love to hear yours as well. And we'll be setting up on our website a simple space for you to write to us and we can get right back to you. We'll also have a call and command center for you as well because we want to hear random act of kindness stories from you too. This is Our American Network. That is, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and it's National Adoption Month. And throughout this month, we're going to be bringing you stories on the power of adoption, which is just really stories about the power of love. And in the end, loving complete strangers and turning them into members of your own family. And for no other reason, really, than, well, you could. And so you did. And anyone who'd ever seen the movie Blindside or read the book by Michael Lewis, uh, it was a stunning and beautiful story about a Christian couple in the Memphis area who adopts a young African-American boy who's, well, he's lost between the cracks of a social welfare system that just didn't take care of him. And, well, you all know the story. And what was remarkable about that story is that Sean and Leanne Tui and those that's the couple that adopted Michael Orr, the football player, uh, had recollected what was most moving to them about that experience, the movie, the fame. It was all the letters they got from folks who said that because of their story, they had chosen to adopt. And in the end, I think that's the most powerful thing about storytelling, and that is its imitative power. And we're hoping as we tell these stories that maybe someone out there who's got a pretty big home and a couple of empty rooms and the budget to handle it, would just take in a kid or two. And our story today it comes from someone you might not expect, a CEO. And usually in our culture, CEOs are pretty much depicted as heartless creatures. And that's a tragedy, and we aim to correct that narrative as well. And this gentleman's the CEO of the American Petroleum Institute, Jack Gerard. Well, you're going to rethink how you think about such folks after you hear this story. Our own Alex Cortez found out that Jack adopted two of his own children and had a fascinating conversation with him about his story, which we bring to you now. Alex began things by asking Jack about his first close-up experience with adoption. In my family, we had four boys and one girl. And I'll never forget that uh, my poor sister, my older sister, whenever we'd play the community football game, it tended to be in our front yard. And so whenever we had an odd person team, we'd recruit her to play. Now, my mother didn't think that was a great idea, but, you know, we all wanted to be athletes, so we'd line up the teams, and if we had the odd person, we'd grab my sister and say, now you got to be on this team. Well, one day somebody tackled her. She fell on the sidewalk and chipped one of her front teeth. And my mother was very less than happy, you might say, with that whole circumstance. <laughs> she told my father, we've got to do something to occupy our daughter's time to get her away from those brothers of hers who were trying to make her a football player. And we decided as a family that one of the things we could do is we could, we needed to have a, another little girl in our home. Well, for whatever reasons, my mother was unable to have any more children, and so we decided to adopt. So I had an uncle who lived in Arizona who called one day and said, I've just had a young child born who wants to be placed for adoption, would you consider that? And we sat as a family. I'll never forget this. I learned this from my parents about family councils. We sat as a family. We got to vote. Did we want a little sister? I was a very young boy at the time. And we all voted, yeah, that'd be cool. Let's go get a sister, you know, like most people would consider. Can we get a dog or should we get a cat? We were voting on, should we get a sister? We said, absolutely. So they drove down. A few days later, they come back, and that's how we got my little sister, Sheila. She lives in upstate New York now. It's been fascinating throughout her life. She has always recognized us and understood us as her family. She was adopted. She's always known that. 
she was part of our family. But later in years, as she grew to maturity and in her 30s or early 40s, uh, decided she was kind of curious as to her birth mother, and she went out on her own, and we assisted her, and she found out, you know, who her birth mother was. And it was a great joy for her to realize that she had extended family as well. But she will always be our family and uh, a wonderful blessing to us. Uh, just like in our home with our two adopted boys, it was a, a real joy and pleasure to have an adopted sister growing up. Those birth mother stories are often, uh, you know, the greatest joy I find in telling these adoption stories, these courageous decisions that these women made. Absolutely, and I'd, and I'd emphasize the word courageous because there are many options, as you know, in today's society, and yet they realize the value of human life and realize the opportunity for others to grow to maturity to be successful as well. And they honor that in many ways, uh, by putting them up for adoption, allowing them to have a good opportunity in this life. So uh, we do need to honor that. And how did Jack's own family, the family he created with his wife, come to adopt? What we had is we have six biological children as well, and they used to uh, put anonymous letters around the house and suggest that uh, we needed more children in our home, believe it or not. And so our children encouraged us to adopt, and when we started looking into it, it didn't take us long. We sat as a family council and decided, uh, yeah, we could do more for society. So we invited two more into our home, two young boys from Guatemala. They're twins, and they've been a great blessing to our family uh, since they've come into our lives. How old were your children when they were putting those letters around your home, and, and where in the world did they get that idea? <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Uh, many of them were in their teens, actually. Uh, you can imagine a household with six children in it anyway. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, our, our family's very close. Kids love spending time with each other. And some of their greatest moments they believe in their lives are all centered around family time. So we have a practice in our home that's built on our faith where we get together once a week in what we call family home evening. And that's a time that we all gather around and we plan the schedule for the week and we also counsel together about different things. And, and adoption kept coming up where the older kids would say, you know, we ought to have a couple more children. So my wife and I got together as uh, based on the direction of our family, our other children, and decided that, you know, oftentimes in an adoption situation, children get broken up or families get broken up. So we made application, said we'd take two. <clears throat> And uh, by agreeing to take two, we were able to uh, be assigned to a set of twins from Guatemala. We were assigned to them at birth, and it took us eight months to uh, bring them home to the United States. And why did it take eight whole months to be able to bring his boys home? Here's Jack with Alex again. Well, you know, you, you hear all sorts of different stories surrounding adoption and foster care and when we were first assigned, uh, the agency that we were working with had done a home study and came in and said, well, you appear to be fit parents and have the ability to take conditional children. So they called us one morning shortly after we'd finished our home study and said we just had two little boys born in Guatemala. And their birth mother had two simple requests, that it was a family that had the wherewithal to take care of them and that they had a belief in God. And those were the two criteria uh, apparently that their birth mother wanted for their placement. So at that point in time, we agreed, sight unseen, that yes, we'd take these two young boys that had just been born. 
We were told the conditions under which they were born. Uh, they were the fifth and sixth children, uh, born with a midwife present, probably on a dirt floor in a little village. The mother uh, probably didn't know she was having twins, but when they were born, realized she probably couldn't take care of them and thus put them up for adoption. So during that eight-month period, uh, there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of cost associated with it, but also some anxious moments, not knowing their health conditions or what they might be like. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Alex's interview with Jack Gerard, CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. And we're covering adoption all month this month, National Adoption Month. And this is one of many stories you'll hear here on Our American Stories. And we want you to share your stories, your adoption stories with us too here on Our American Stories. And go to Our American Network and just post a, post a story there and we'll get in touch with you. And again, all month, National Adoption Month, this is Our American Stories, Jack Gerard's story, my goodness, prompted by his young kids to fill that house with more love. And my goodness, he had to just be so happy to know he had those kind of kids. And, you know, you worry about a lot of things as a parent. But if you got kids who are pushing you to adopt other children, I think that worry quotient just almost disappears. More again about Jack Gerard's beautiful story after these moments. our American story. It's National Adoption Month, and we continue with the story of Jack Gerard, those remarkable kids of his who kept dropping notes all around the house. And Alex then asked Jack about bringing those two children home to the United States. Jack, were you nervous bringing them home? Did it, did it feel in any way different than bringing your biological children home from the hospital? Not really. In, in fact, in, in some ways, I would describe it as extra special. Every child that's come into our home has been special in their own way. But I was particularly struck by, we got as far as Atlanta coming from Guatemala, and because we had to go through security, we actually missed our connecting flight, had to stay over at a hotel in Atlanta. And we came in the next morning into northern Virginia, and I was dumbfounded. It was as if the whole neighborhood was waiting for us to arrive. So the minute we got home, everybody in the neighborhood came over, and they had all the gifts for the little guys. And I mean, it was really a a village community-centered activity at that point in time. So it, they were very much not only adopted by us, but adopted by our extended community, our street, our neighbors, and others. And it became a bit of a, a, a community effort, if you will. And Jack and Alex continue this Really unbelievable story. One, by the way, the media just doesn't cover. And for the life of me, I don't know why. What's the impact that you've seen on your own children? Uh, obviously, they, they inspired you, your family to do a beautiful thing. But have, um, you, have you noticed any impact since these children have been with you on, on your biological children? Well, the impact on our biological children has really been quite significant. In fact, I would suggest to any family that's considering adoption, 
if you want one way to pull the rest of your family together to give them a common cause and a common purpose and go adopt a child or bring a child of foster care into your home because it became a group effort and a lot of their individual concerns as people as children in our household immediately went away because the focus then turned to these special young boys that had just entered our household and we have found over time that they not only the relationships fantastic but it has meant a lot to our kids to understand others who may not be as fortunate and understand that there are issues in our society and in the world where they can make a difference. Simple acts of love or attention to others to extend beyond themselves, to give service to others. And it taught them great lessons. And I've noticed it in our older children. Our oldest son is now 31 years old. And yet he gives countless hours in public service to his community. He's very active in the Boy Scout movement, in our church movement, etc. And it's been interesting to watch because we're very proud of him and his wife and what they do. But it appears that they have learned that by doing it within our home, particularly as it relates to our adopted twins. Alex then continued with a question I've been thinking about throughout this interview. Jack, how do you manage your time? I mean, you got a lot going on, obviously, with the American Petroleum Institute, but also the Boy Scouts, which you just mentioned, and your Mormon church. You have a leadership role as well. How do, how do you possibly do it all? The, the other person this kind of reminds me of, uh, a frequent person who comes on our show is, is Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, and he's adopted something like 18 kids. He's run 58 marathons. He's ridden over 80 books on leadership and all of that's besides being you know the senior vice president of the magic i just don't get how the two of you guys do it well i stand in awe for people like that who really accomplish a lot in life uh, my schedule is such i i learned a great principle from one of our church leaders in in which he describes as good better and best we can do a lot of good things in life we can do a lot of better things in life but with the limited time we have, we need to really prioritize and do the best things in life. And so in my life, we try to mix that, not only with our professional pursuits to take care of our families and be a provider and give them opportunity to assist society generally, but also focus on giving back to community. My wife and I spend a fair amount of our own resource and time in the philanthropic areas, higher education, our own faith. We spend a lot of time there. But also, I have the privilege to chair the board of the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. It's the largest bipartisan, bicameral caucus in the Congress, Democrats, Republicans, independents. And we get together and really focus on things beyond our political differences, such as the well-being of children. What does that mean for society? What does that mean for the nation as a whole? And how do we look at that rising generation as we uh, figure out the legacy we will leave. And so to me, those are the best things of life. And if we really spend time doing those, it puts everything else in context. We live in a world that I believe primarily driven heavily by technology has really become quite polarized where everybody can comment on everything and we, we because it's a, a faceless society to some degree, it has a tendency to allow people to say things that they might not say in human relations. So I think a lot of this drives this polarization we're seeing, and therefore we need to find ways to get together to collaborate, to find common cause, to find common good. 
I think children is one of those things that we all agree on. We might have a little different style as to how we might raise a child, a little different value system that guides who we are. But I think fundamentally most everyone would agree that perhaps the most vulnerable in society are the children. And that's one area we can rally around, come together on and say, yes, we all agree we need to do something here. And that's why it gives us great satisfaction and joy. And frankly, it's interesting. A lot of people say, wow, what a blessing you've been to these two boys. And I would say quite the opposite. What a blessing they've been to us, uh, not only bringing our family together, but to give us real purpose, meaning, and satisfaction uh, in this life. Yeah, that reminds me of a quote Rich DeVos once gave uh, the founder of Amway. And he said, uh, someone said, thank you for this donation you gave. He said, you know, he said, no, thank you for the opportunity to do this. Alex and Jack continue talking about managing time and how Jack's bride is the true hero of their family. Uh, you had a funny quote I wanted to talk about, too, with managing your time. I go to the office to relax. Yeah. Well, we often say, uh, I, I'm always struck on occasion, since we had our first child, we've been fortunate. My wife has been able to stay home with the children. We make them a priority in our lives Back to time management, that's the best thing we can do in life is to help the rising generation. You know, oftentimes at dinner, somebody will say, well, they'll ask my wife, well, do you work? And uh, she'll say, well, I'm at home with the kids. Oh, so you don't have a job then. And I think to myself, her her job is 24-7. My job is somewhat controllable. I spend long hours, but it's minimal compared to what she does as we think about children, raising children. So we often joke that I go to the office every day to relax. She sits in the pressure cooker. She works hard day in, day out, getting the kids to school, taking care of the illnesses, the trials, the Band-Aids, whatever it might be. And so my life in many ways is more manageable and better under control, if you will, because her life is 100% devoted to service in behalf of those children. And I think that's a remarkable thing. To me, that is the most fulfilling job in life, but it's the most difficult job in life. So her commitment 24-7 is far more demanding than my job. Society might view mine as more demanding, more important. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think her commitment, her time, thinking of that rising generation, particularly children, to have a solid foundation, moral values and understanding is very important. And that and that's what she does. So we, we often joke in our home that, well, Dad's going to the office to relax now. You had a, a terrific quote about your wife. My companion is probably the best CEO I've ever met. Speaking of... Um you know, comparing her to the terms, you know, people often regard you as the CEO. It's just a, a beautiful quote. Well, it's, it's fascinating, as you know, Alex, because you look around and you think about what a mother does or what a father does or what a single parent does or, or whatever your organization of family might be. And we think about CEOs being the ones on the top that have to do a little bit of everything. Well, to me, that role of parenthood, motherhood, fatherhood, or whatever is really the most inclusive CEO of all, because not only are you getting things done, you're trying to be efficient, you're trying to lead, you're trying to create a vision, but it's having meaningful impact on others, and particularly to benefit the lives of others in a very meaningful, real way in their personal uh, humankind role. 
So, like I often say, my wife uh, teaches me a lot of things that I've never understood or read in any management books before, just by nature of who she is, her kindness, her charity towards all, and particularly towards the least, the most vulnerable or the the least able sometimes, and and that's the children. So, as as people often say, uh, you know, what can you do to be a great leader in life? Uh, my view is you go run a nonprofit organization and raise children. Because in both instances, your leverage over how that comes out is not driven by, gee, I'm going to get hired or fired today, or driven by compensation or bonuses, or how do we make sure the boss is happy. It's driven by skill sets that require you to get people to do things like depart with their money or give of themselves and give of time, where you really have no ability or leverage over them to do such. And that, to me, is true leadership or leadership skills. And that's why raising a family can be so challenging, is because in many ways you've got to be a CEO well beyond what the world would consider skill sets the CEOs hold. And in many ways it's equally valuable in terms of its impact on individuals' lives. Great job on that, Alex. We were listening, wow, for two great segments to Jack Gerard. I want him to host a leadership segment. My goodness. And especially on this family and the CEIDEA notion that that mom, that dad, or the CEOs are the most important organization in America, the family. And by the way, you could track almost all of America's problems to the deterioration, deterioration of that family unit and the skills it takes and the soft skills it takes to run it. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Story, National Adoption Month. Jack Gerard, what a story. Oh,